everyone, and welcome back to the Rumcast. This is the podcast that talks all things rum-related with the people who love and shape it. My name is John Gullah, and with me on this expedition into the rum wilderness today is none other than Mr. Will Hookinga. We're excited for everyone to listen to our interview today with Ed Tiege, master distiller for Copal Tree Distillery in Belize, manufacturer of Copali Rum. But before we get to that, of course, Will, what's going on with you uh, there in the Tennessee Valley rumland? Well, first of all, I like how you referred to the distillery as the manufacturers of Kapali rum. Such a, it, it's one of those, you know, just big official words that, that I didn't expect to hear in the intro, but you I gotta I throw like in it. a throw in a 10 cent word there once they're, in a while. They're manufacturing grab, out grab there. Grab people's attention. Yeah. <laughs> they don't just um, make rum, they manufacture it. Exactly. It actually makes it sound worse somehow. I feel like that's a very like industrial <laughs> right, sounding. It almost, yeah, and yeah. they're the and opposite they're, of that. They're the yeah. opposite of that, as we'll get into. But anyway, uh, sorry about the tangent. I'm, I'm doing well here. You know, I wanted to make reference to our previous episode In our intro, we each made our March Madness style brackets where we had kind of uh, we we seeded and or sort of like pretended that Eldorado rums were in a March Madness style tournament. And we came up with the seeds, what should be the number one seed, the number two seed, the number three seed, etc. You and I, we aligned on some stuff and Mm -hmm. we had we had some pretty big disagreements. I, I think some of my picks you were particularly, you know, not agreeing with mm-hmm. at all. And I yeah. have to say, I got it just as bad from other people as I did from you after as the I episode expected. aired. So mm-hmm. both online and even in person, <laughs> oh, I had wow. people specifically bring up ones that I got wrong, which I love to hear. But yeah, the having Pussers as the number one seed for the non-DDL, like the non-Eldorado side mm-hmm. of the bracket, mm-hmm. which... I, I hesitate to even repeat that I did that because without the context, without the explanation, it sounds even worse. Now, of course, there were people who, even with the explanation and the context, thought I was an idiot. But we'll put all that aside. I'll well, just look. say, I mean, we we had a we had a couple of of patrons submit their own fully seated tournaments, which was yeah, great was to cool. see. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least two of them had that Pussers one as the number seven, which is the second to last seed. So mm-hmm. it was a uh, yeah, it was a tough. I've I've done a lot of you know, contemplating a lot of soul searching since then. But did you did you receive any any feedback uh, about your picks? I saw the online stuff where people talked about it, but I think I was in the right this time. So I didn't get much, <laughs> uh, much pushback on it. You just I, I still like, you just still hear it about the, the, the fantasy draft, right? <laughs> I, so I was going to say exactly. I was going to mention the same thing. I was going to say this feels to me like like my fantasy draft blunder that we uh-huh. did back in. What was it? October of last year. Yeah, this is this is your now because I, I never stopped hearing about that. It was like months <laughs> of like, how could you not have, you know, picked that and let him do that? And I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a bad choice. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this is it's it's nice to, you know, finally have you experience this now and, and we be on even terms again in terms of blunders. I'm, I'm assuming you're doing the thing on Zoom right now where you have the blurred out background. And I'm assuming that's because you've got you're you're already preparing for this year's fantasy draft and you've got like a big board back there. You're ranking all the prospects and everything and you don't want me to see your strategy. That's I'm already I'm, researching. I'm, I'm already <laughs> researching. I cannot give away what I've worked on so far. Exactly right. So it's hidden information. And and this this year you're going down. Just so you uh, know, well, we well, are doing that again. By the way, yes. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. It was great last year. We had over a hundred people vote, 
and resoundingly select my team as the winner. So we'll we'll see <laughs> we'll see how it goes I this don't year. Know what qualifies as resounding there? But okay, it's All right. you know you you know it when when you feel it. it you just, it's just one of those things. There's no precise definition, but you just mm-hmm. you just know it when it happens. So mm. um, anyway, all all that aside, other than yeah, having to deal with that, I'm doing pretty good. I also I before we get to the interview, I want to talk about one other little recent experience I had that maybe you can relate to, maybe listeners can relate to, but I want to share a frustrating blind tasting experience mm. that I had. How, how often do you blind taste stuff? Um, just, you know, try to qu- quiz yourself, you see if you can figure out what something is. Not as much as I should. And the reason is I'm typically trying a lot of new rums and I, I try them, you know, right out of the bottle or the, the, the samples labeled. So I don't really have the chance to do that. Right. But to your point, I, I really enjoy doing it's fun, uh, right? Wine tasting, yeah, yeah. And, and humbling, and I, I, right? Humbling <laughs> and challenging in the right ways, and it's fun to just work things out. Honestly, I get better tasting notes typically when I do it. Blind. Really? Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, like, do you mean just they come easier to you, or you feel like the ones that you come up with are are more unique? Like, you you you, exactly. you pick up more stuff. The, the latter, I think, where okay. whereas I have an expectation going in. Oh, if this is uh, a, gotcha. a Guyana rum, mm-hmm. I already have a something in my mind of what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that works and sometimes maybe it doesn't because of, you know, the, the different distilleries in different regions and countries mm-hmm. or whatever. But the idea is if I don't know what it is at all, I tend to just try to pick things out that I'm getting and mm-hmm. then see how that marries up later once I know what it is. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah I could see that for sure. So... What happened to me, I was at Chopper, the great local rum bar here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And I would, if anyone's coming through Nashville right now, you should go to Chopper because uh, Max Carlin there, who, who runs the bar, he has some really inventive drinks on the menu right now. Um, he has one called the Sweet Corn, which is designed to taste like a lote, and uh, it has uh, it has like a cotilla cheese foam on it. It sounds insane. Uh, it's really cool. And he has another one called Ants on a Log that's inspired by the snack that we all grew up eating. Um, anyway, that's not the the point of this. But Max was behind the bar, and I was with a couple of other people, and he was like, "Hey, let's play Name That Rum." Uh, and you know, he poured us some rums, and we had to try to guess what they are. And the first one came, and I think all of us knew it was Jamaica. And we narrowed it down to like Long Pond Clarendon. And I don't remember which one it was, but we ended up like, think- I ended up thinking it was the opposite of whichever one it was. Okay. But like, I was okay. like, okay, I was in the ballpark. I felt pretty yeah. good about that. Then we get to the next two. And the frustrating thing was, I, I don't, when, when I do blind tasting, I often find that my first instinct like what I think right away, I think there's a subconscious element to it Mm -hmm. is often closer than if I try to sort of really sit back and think about it. But I think I was feeling the pressure, you know, I was in a public setting and everything. And I had, I had one of those gut reactions to both of the next two that I tried, but I ignored it. And I started trying to think like, well, you know, could these rums be there? What other rums are likely to be in this bar? You know, is Max trying to trick me? I got really inside my own head about it. And then what ended up happening was when he revealed it, my initial instinct was at least like, it was either in the ballpark or like correct in both cases, but I didn't say it out loud. And so I I could, I didn't say anything. I, I didn't want to be the like, 
I almost said that guy or like the I was going to uh, say that yeah. guy, you yeah. know? Yeah, so I just is, had to sit yeah. there quietly and be like, damn it, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I was so close. If I had just listened, if I had just followed my initial instinct, I would have looked like such a smart guy. And I, I'm, I'm not saying what they are because I don't want to sound like I'm now retroactively trying to do that on the podcast to prove uh-huh. how smart I am. That's not what this is about. What this is about is just when you're blind tasting, a note I'm making to myself after this is just trust your gut don't try to get too distracted too inside your own head about like yeah. all the other factors the just pay yeah. pay attention to the rum itself and and what it is speaking to you so right. that was a that was a tough lesson i had to learn this weekend yeah i would say if you go there like once a week or more and max knows you to that extent of like he's going to give you stuff that's now going to try to throw you <laughs> then you got that like meta game thing going on but lacking that i agree with you this isn't 100%. something no, this isn't a weekly yeah. tradition so right, yeah right it right. was yeah so anyway uh for all the 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 blind tasters out there the people who are, are trying to get better at it like uh I, i'm trying to get better at it because mm-hmm. it's like as we said really hard that's that's uh something i'm gonna listen to next time is really just following my gut but john you know with that out of the way as you mentioned in the intro we interviewed ed Tiege, the master distiller at copal tree distillery the manufacturers of kapali rum <laughs> and this was a really cool interview. I, th- I think it's interesting to me that we did this one, and this wasn't intentional, it just kind of happened, but we did this one pretty shortly after doing the Renegade interview. Right. And as we were getting ready for this, and even as we talked to Ed, I couldn't help but see all these parallels. And, and I'm not saying they're doing the exact same things, you know, very different in their approaches, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. very different in the, the products they're putting out there. But, you know, when we talked about Renegade and kind of introduced that, it was... This is interesting because it's this large scale, not not large scale on the sense of like an Appleton or a, a Mount Gay or something like that, but larger than the average brand new startup distillery. This right. isn't just your local craft place that you exactly. know, is, yeah. is making these tiny batches and stuff. So that was kind of what was one of the draws to us for that was, you know, they're making this big investment and in building this distillery, planting all this sugar cane, doing really interesting rums. And when you look at what Kapali is doing over in Belize, it's it's really similar. It's, it's in that kind of medium scale size where they've got a couple of pot stills for smaller batch stuff, but they also have a fairly large, you know, column still that can really mm-hmm crank out volume and they've got a 3000 acre organic farm planting lots of sugar cane there. And so it's really one of those things where it's just, this is someone that has made a very substantial investment in the rum category and not only the rum category, but the cane juice rum category. And they're really serious about doing this. And, you know, you and I have both, I think talked about Kapali products on the podcast before, and we both, you know, have, have, favorable impressions of them have enjoyed what we've tasted from them so far and they've got a few newer releases on the horizon they've been around since 2018 so they're just on the cusp of releasing their first five-year rum and uh, some single varietal stuff as well so i think it's an exciting time to talk to them and it's another kind of window into just the excitement that i feel around the cane juice category right now with so many more people outside of the the go-to places we think of like martinique and other other french associated islands like that now making large investments in the category 
Yeah, one of the things also, and you mentioned Renegade, that is similar with them is that sustainability factor also, yeah. which we, we don't get into too much. But I, I wanted to say that I, I feel like there's a different category for what Kopali has been able to do with sustainability and the, the way that they've approached things and also Renegade to an extent because they're both newer distilleries hmm. uh, or, or newer than most. It is really interesting to see how people are setting up to utilize the land and to get right. back to the land and make that a cycle that is very sustainable over time is is an interesting thing. And I, I really appreciate that angle of what they're doing as well. Yeah, it's kind of like when you're starting from scratch, you can kind of just, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost easier to design those systems from the get-go and build right. the distillery to suit that model as opposed to if you have a distillery that was built 40, 50, 60 years ago, and, you know, didn't have a lot of those practices in mind, then having to try to sort of retrofit things, update things to, to fit that model. So it is a really interesting approach. And I, I think this this may be the only interview where we talk about a flavored rum product as much as, yes. as we did. Yeah, and, I was just about to mention um, it too. Yeah. And if, if you hear that and you sort of be like... <sighs> Oh, like, <laughs> I don't know about that. Just yeah, hang yeah. on, hang on like for the ride. Reaction. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, John and I both, are, you know, we don't talk about flavored rums much on, on this show, but they have one that we both view pretty favorably. And it's, it's, it's pretty interesting and unique. And yeah. there's, there's a cool story behind how it came together, which Ed shared with us. So, um, yeah, I think with that out of the way, we can take a quick break and go over to the show. are here with Ed Tiege, the master distiller at Copaltry Distillery, the makers of Kapali Rum. And Ed, I wanted to I wanted to see, am I correct in guessing that we caught you at maybe your busiest time of the year? Because as I understand it, when I was, you know, going back and, and reading up on Kapali and everything, if, I, if I'm correct, your harvest season is fully underway right now. And I didn't realize that until I was, you know, reading stuff that it runs only through from March until June for you. So are you just kind of working the stills around the, the clock, processing all that fresh juice while you still can? Oh, yeah. we were, So right now we harvest five days a week. Okay. Um, mm. So it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We skip Thursday and then Friday, Saturday. And But the stills are running 24-7. So we're operating everything 24-7. So the gotcha. boil crew, we have shifts for the boil crew. We have shifts of the... Uh, Distillery's crew, so we're in constant motion here. It's an mm. exciting time of year. Yeah. What so you, you sleep on Sundays, right? And then that's it. <laughs> well, <laughs> not everybody sleeps on Sundays. But <laughs> the the mill guys have it the easiest. They only work five days a week. The, the mill and the—I uh, won't say the, the the easiest, but they they put in the least amount of hours. The mill guys and the uh, the farm harvesters. So the other parts of the year, non-harvest season, I, this is going to sound like a silly question. I know that you're doing tons of stuff during that, that time of the year, but when you're you know, not constantly distilling everything, I guess you maybe have some runs that are left over that you can distill, but what does right. it look like when it's not harvest season? Well, for, we'll, we'll do some of, our, some of our infused and redistilled products. We'll okay. try to do in that, that period of time because it's not, you know, it's not critical to have the whole team working, so we can do those a little bit more 
selectively when we need to do them. Mm -hmm. Instead of during the season, it's like the harvest is a harvest and we got to get the stuff out of the field and get it processed while we can. Mm -hmm. And then it's always, you know, when you're running, you know, 24 seven for 20, 21 weeks, stuff will break. Okay. Sometimes you can fix it perfectly, and sometimes you wrap it up in duct tape and bailing wire <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> until you have an opportunity to, to fix it properly. And that's usually what the off-season is. We'll, we'll do a complete maintenance inventory of the entire facility, mm-hmm. what projects need to be done, what the priorities are, order parts, because getting parts where we are in Belize is always a multi-process. Mm-hmm. Do that. Gotcha. So I wanted to kind of go back to the beginning. I think, you know, most of the time when new distilleries launch, they're fairly small. And I feel like Kapali is, it's not massive, but it certainly doesn't strike me as small. It's almost kind of like, like in between stage where right. it, you know, it's a serious operation. You've got the multiple pot stills, you have the, the, the big columns. It seems like you're already in a growing amount of markets. And my understanding is that you've been there since the beginning. So I wanted to start by asking just how did you get involved in the first place, what was kind of the vision that that sold you on the opportunity? You know, I, I'm imagining you relocated to Belize, um, and you know, how much does where you are now match up with what you imagined when you first started? Well, that's a that's an interesting question, and there are several answers to that. Now, I'll actually try to give you the honest ones. Well, that's what we Good. love. We we prefer <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> so before I came down to Belize, I was actually I owned in operated my small own small distillery in uh, Westchester County, New York. We made whiskey, some vodkas and gins, some made from honey, some made from grain spirits, and a, lot, a, a bit of malt whiskey. So I would say that gin and malt whiskey was my specialty there. So, you know, everything but rum, basically. <laughs> basically everything but rum. Well, we did make mead for and redistill that. So in one sense, it was kind of like the same thing. But mm-hmm. uh, my training was as an auto V maker. So mm-hmm. working with cane juice, actually, that kind of brought me back to what I knew how to do. But anyway, how I got involved with it is it was that it was like March, I want to say 2014. I'd have to look back, though. 2014, a friend of mine let me know that there was this group in California who owned some organic restaurants and they were kind of involved in starting a project rum pr- distillery in Belize and they were mm-hmm. looking for a consultant and would I be interested and it was cold in this in the distillery um, and I said absolutely <laughs> I met with them you know we chat a little bit I worked with them kind of on a consulting basis a little small retainer you know a few times a month phone calls find out where the project was what they were thinking about doing with it what my thoughts were on it. And then about a year goes by and I say, well, we're finally getting around to putting this thing together. Do you want to be the guy? And I said, absolutely. So it's cold, so cold New York winners are, <laughs> you know, what's, what's partially responsible. Well, that's, that, that, what, that convinced me to take the meeting, right? And then, <laughs> you know, what, what got me down there was one is that, you know, and not to, not to undersell it, but you know, the, the operation was well-funded, right? You didn't mm. want to go to something yeah, yeah. that was funding on a shoestring, relocate your life. Two was, you know, the opportunity to make something with a really unique ingredient, right, that, you know, you weren't seeing in the marketplace. Because, you know, as a craft distiller in New York you, or in, anywhere in the U.S., you know, if you make whiskey or you make bourbon, you know, everybody's using 
number two dead corn, right? Mm. Basically, uh, yeah. if you make rye whiskey in New York, you're buying organic rye from the same guy that everybody else buys it from because he's one of the two farmers that does it. Mm -hmm. So all your ingredients, you know, everybody's kind of making the same thing in kind of the same ways. And yeah. differentiating yourself is difficult. And it's just not that much fun to make stuff that everybody else makes, right? Sure. And so this was a, kind of an opportunity to work with a unique ingredient in a unique environment, you know, organic products, and be able to define the product and how it's going to, you know, touch the consumers for the first time. And as a distiller or as a maker of anything, you don't get many chances to do that. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of like the real thing is that, you know, for good or bad, I get to have the first shot at, at making this and see if it works as a product. And speaking of that, so you're given the keys to the kingdom, if you will. And as you mentioned, your background was in pretty much everything but rum. So with, with those two things, how did you even begin to approach this? Did you rely solely on that background or did you just go into diving about learning about as much about rum as you could? How did that work out? Well, at first... The firm that had the engineering firm that had designed and overseen the construction of the distillery built it in what the owner what ownership thought they wanted in the distillery. Hmm. So they hired a Puerto Rican engineering firm. Okay. They we need a rum distillery and we're making rum for organic sugarcane juice. And the the engineer says, I know exactly what you need. So they build a I don't want to I don't want to say ethanol plant, but they built <laughs> you know, a, a three-column uh, distillation unit that provides a, a very high level of purity in the spirit that comes out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there are yeah. several we can we could name the guys that do that. And you know when we when everybody tasted it, and that was the one thing during the initial meetings. I had, they told me this is what they're buying, this is the equipment, and then they would tell me what the vision they were for the spirit. I would say, hmm. I don't know if this is really what you want, mm. right? This is the right equipment. But I guess I had said it enough times that they also, kind of like as an aside, instilled a Olympic pot still. They bought one and kind of put that in one of the side buildings. Yeah. So after we kind of made very light rum, they say, well, this isn't exactly what we were looking for. We were you like, I told you? <laughs> no, I didn't do that. <laughs> I thought that, but I didn't, I didn't say that. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't said, don't well, get fired have, is the motto. Yeah. <laughs> we have a 2,000 liter cognac still. And I say, I know what to do with that. Mm. And so we just ran some batches, you know, standard cognac distillations, two distillations of the wine, the cane wine and the low wines mm -hmm. spirit. And, you know, we had some people come in and taste it. And one of those was uh, the gentleman from Foursquare. He was nice enough to uh, come down for his fee and kind of critique our operation. Okay, that's and, interesting. And uh, when he tasted the, the pot still stuff, he said, you could sell this. So <laughs> that, was, that was high praise indeed. I was going to yeah, say high yeah. praise, yeah. High praise indeed. And uh, so that's kind of what you know got us on the track of using the pot stills as kind of like the primary flavor portion of the rum and then the light rum either for blending or for mm -hmm. other purposes for other type of products that we're making. So that's how that kind of just, just happened. It's like, you know, we bought a cognac still. I know how to use a cognac still. We're going to try it this way. So I'll have to say that I was pretty, um, 
you know, probably a cross between arrogant and ignorant about, you know, how other guys were making rum. And uh, one way is like, I didn't really care. Mm-hmm. I knew the equipment I had and I was trying to do the best thing that we could with the equipment we had. Yeah, right. that arrogant yeah. ignorance uh, blend seems to be key for uh, for a lot of people to success. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and you're also working with the natural constraints, like you said. Um, right. You know, they had they had the big columns still already. They had the Olympic pots, and you know, it's you've you've found something that works. Right. Um, which is really interesting. So, so I'm I'm correct then in in understanding that the initial column still system that they had put in there is the one that's still there today. You're still utilizing oh, absolutely, yeah. same stuff. We yeah. still use it. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, I'm, I'm sipping on some Kapali white right here and I feel, and that is a blended product of what is yeah. it? It's 75% column and 25% pot. Is that right? That is correct. That's well, correct. and that, that balance really comes through in it to me. That's one of the things I think stands out about this rum is I think it's really approachable and versatile right. be, because of the kind of the, the column still, you know, profile, but that 25% of pot does bring that really nice, interesting element that I think even if you are someone who's already a rum enthusiast, you taste it and you go, oh, there's something interesting here, you know? So yeah, I think, I think it's come together really nicely. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I can't, I can't take credit for the blend percentage because, you know, as a, as a distiller, I would have wanted more pot still. (laughs) Wiser people than I decided, Hey, let's, you know, Let's not be too aggressive. Let's make it more approachable because it's sugarcane rums are can be a challenging taste for some people on the palate. Yeah, it's it's I mean it's a it's a very new different Right. People um, don't think about know, rum that way. Yeah, right? exactly. So people aren't used to that profile. I think as, you know, a, a way to kind of, you know, introduce that style to people. I think it's, you know, it's a it was an excellent choice to do it in, that, in those percentages. I think our listeners will be secretly kind of like nodding along, being like, okay, yeah, Ed's one of us. He wanted more pot still in the, <laughs> in the blend. So, <laughs> And well, I'm sure down the line, maybe we can make that happen. When is Ed's 50-50 blend coming out? <laughs> well, Ed's, Ed's 100% blend is going to get released this year. Oh, okay. So that, that took a little bit more convincing. Um, <laughs> But we are doing a, a special varietal of 100% pot still unaged product this year. Oh, this is the. Wow. Is this the black cane? This varietal? is the black cane. Yeah, we've Got actually. It. We, we sent a few pallets over to France, kind of like to, to test the market and get some reception for that. But we've also, you know, we're gearing up to, to release, hopefully at the, by the end of the year, the, the black cane product. Okay, we'll we'll circle back to that later in the conversation. Yeah. And, and actually, this is a good time to talk about. We we usually talk about sustainability and sustainable practices with people, but I wanted to push this one up towards the front of the conversation for a few reasons, and that is because it seems like you and and Kapali started with the mission being making a distillery that was fully sustainable, producing zero waste. And I know you were directly involved in that planning, as you mentioned. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that with us and what it went into start that. And also, has there been any adjustments since then you've had to make along the way to keep that commitment? So I, I, you know, I can't say that I drove the process. I was an observer of the process when I came into it. Um, mm-hmm. There I had some very bright people that had, had maybe not had done that for distilleries, but it done all these kind of mitigation and sustainable work before and incorporating into this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess I'm at the risk of, you know, making a religious comment. And I'm kind of like, you know, having grown up Catholic, the most fervent Catholics are the guys who can, people who convert to Catholicism. <laughs> so right. 
you know, as far as, you know, being introduced to the, you know, the sustainable culture and the, the, the idea and the concepts of organic farming, I guess I've become a convert and I'm probably one of the more fervent uh, believers. I like the analogy. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, the, the whole project or all the streams that came into the, the distillery, they wanted to kind of be able to use everything that came into the distillery and put it back on the field. So that came from the use of the gas for the boiler. Naturally, Mm -hmm. ash goes back to the flame, goes back to the fields, using vanass as a fertigation fertigation product. So it also fertilizes and irrigates. And even, you know, the waste, what other liquid waste streams we have, there are settling ponds and ways to, you know, filter the product before it hits the wetlands and then the, the water table and the and the, the river system. So all those things, even the, the idea of capturing rainwater for us, you know, all those yeah. were part of the inception and the design of the distillery. Um, yeah. so integral to that. And that was that was based on, you know, what ownership really was looking for in introducing this to Belize. Because everybody's committed to the people of Belize and to the land of Belize too. And right. Set up something that, you know, made things worse there, right? You, mm. you wanted to kind of create a, an economic opportunity for the people in the country, and the, but not leave it worse off than when you got there. Yeah, I was going to mention that just researching and looking at all of the pictures of the Copal Tree Distillery and the Copal Tree Lodge that is nearby there in Belize, and you're essentially like surrounded by rainforest. Right. Right. We're, so we're in a little valley, you know, that used to be, be orange groves when they try to have citrus industry down there. And, you know, we're surrounded by rainforest on all sides. That's incredible. It looks like an amazing place to visit. So. Yes, it is. Was that, a, a you know, a major change of pace for you in terms of, you know, coming from a small craft distillery in New York? And you mentioned that you were you became a convert on sustainability practices and things like that. How, like how how much of a change of uh distiller's mindset is it coming from a place that you know isn't this kind of closed loop system to a place that is totally are there other things in your you know approach to the craft that you have to change to adjust to that along the way i don't think there was anything you know the the way we're doing things it's certainly what it does it makes it a lot easier Mm. you know as a manager Mm. of the facility because you know you don't have to figure out how you got to get people to pull stuff away, right? Right. Of, you know, special treatment. You have to treat things with chemicals to make it acceptable for the environment. All those sorts mm-hmm. of things. So I think, from you know, a flow management point of view, it makes it a little bit easier because you know where the stuff is going, right? Mm-hmm. And you know there is a use for it at the end. So I think, from my perspective, it made things maybe just a little bit easier to handle. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I was just talking to a, a dis- not a rum distiller, but a distiller I know here in Nashville the other day who's calling a bunch of waste management companies and stuff because he's, you know, got all this, I, I guess it's Vanass or, you know, whatever's left over that he needs to get rid of. And yeah, I'm, having your own closed loop system would probably be pretty convenient. Um, yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the sugar cane. You know, that's a big part of this operation. And I think any time I see a new distillery pop up somewhere, in the world and they're, they're doing cane juice and they're growing all the sugar cane themselves. That's when I'm like, and especially when they're kind of the size that, that y'all are down there, that's when I, I'm yeah. really like, okay, this is, they are really serious about this because it's not easy to do all of this stuff. Um, once you start factoring right. in the farming and, and everything, all, all the, you know, the variables that it introduces. So give us kind of the overview of, of what the, 
the farming side of things look like you have you have two what i believe are heirloom cane varietals cane varietals that were local to the area how did you kind of settle on those varietals and i also you know you mentioned releasing a, a black cane single varietal later this year do you use both of them in equal amounts for you know your current rums you're making give us kind of the sense of what all that looks like well when we when we started they actually started the test fields before I got there. So what they did is they went to some of the, because there used to be more sugarcane farming locally in the area, you know, probably about a hundred years mm. ago. The, that industry predominantly became a northern industry, northern Belize. That's where the sugar mills okay. are mm-hmm. and the northern farms are. But people kept those, you know, in small plots in the villages, their own sugarcane plots. And so what we did was we kind of went to those and kind of, you know, started grabbing different varietals and planted those and, and, and grew small plots of those to see what you know, kind of characteristics mm-hmm. they had. There was, a, there was a variety of different genotypes that you could see that, you know, they were clearly different from each other. And, you know, some of them were what they, you would call as, you know, soft chewing mm-hmm. cane, right? So if that you actually could chew the pulp and the juice and get the ju- extracted juice of it. And some of them were much harder, which were clearly they were remnants or examples of, of the more commercial varieties that were being grown in the north. Okay. Well, the, the principal difference between what we started focusing on was really the quality of the juice, right? Because a commercial sugar cane, if you're making sugar in a factory, there's only two things you care about. You care about the bricks content, the sugar, well, the sugar is, and the fiber content. Because after you press the juice for the sugar, you're left over with fire, and that's energy for the boiler, which produces mm-hmm. steam and electricity, right? So those are your two elements that you worry most about. And you don't really care what the juice tastes right. like, right? For us, it was exactly the opposite. We really cared, certainly one of the high sugar content, a reasonably high sugar content, but it was more important what the the totality of the juice tasted like. What, what do you, what well, do you, after, are there certain specific characteristics you're looking for in tasting the juice? Or are you just kind of contrasting them and being like, this one tastes better than the other? Just kind of, at that point, you know, we had about six that we kind of were, were uh-huh. honing in on. And we were just saying, okay, we like this one better than this yeah. one. And then we would just, we would make small batches of rum mm-hmm. with it. And we kind of settled on what we would call a yellow and a red cane, right? And we started growing those. And after we started growing those, we noticed that in first in some of them there was a completely different one. It's we call it black cane, but what they are is that they're a very very dark purple with a waxy coating on it, so it looks mm-hmm. black. Mm-hmm. And they were distinguished by by their type. And also that the stalks were very thick, mm. about as thick around as my rescue. You can see the red cane was kind of more, I won't say pencil ship, but much thinner, mm-hmm. and the very heavy stalks, and not quite as tall. Okay. So we kind of pulled those aside and say, what do these taste like? And, you know, we started pressing the juice and like that. And that was, that was actually a revelation. That was the most different tasting sugarcane juice we ever had. So that's when we started doing separate small plots of that, trying to develop that. But initially it was, was red and a yellow cane that we were doing. And we ultimately stopped doing the yellow cane because we just weren't that happy with the quality Compared to the red, we weren't that happy with the quality of the, the rum that it was mm. producing. Hmm. And then we kind of started increasing slowly the amount of black cane allocated to the, to the fields. So that's how, basically how we got to those. We just kind of started with a bunch of different things, 
try the juice, say, okay, these seem okay, do a little bit more, make a little bit more rum from it, and then further cold it down till we, you know, one is a happy accident, and one is something that we just kind of, you know, I'd settled on and thought this made a solid mm -hmm. rum. So right now, all our products are primarily made with red cane. So the white rum is all red cane, the rested rum is red cane, and what we're going to release as a five-year is going to be the red cane. Now, we do have black cane aging. We have some barrels of that aging. We're not sure if we're going to end up using that as a blend in our five-year going forward, or that'll be an individual okay. product. We're, we're releasing the five-year, or we're releasing the black cane as a pot still unaged. Right. right, okay, so that's... So that's kind of, what, that's, <laughs> that's kind of how we're, we're doing that, but it's... It wasn't this kind of like grand plan. It's like we kind of tried a bunch of things and we start narrowing down and narrowing down until we get something that we really mm -hmm. like. So the the Black Cane single varietal you mentioned that you're going to release, you know, unaged, is that's the one that you kind of, you know, pushed for to do. That's 100% right. pot still, as you said. What is, um, have you arrived at a, a proof you're going to release that at? Yeah, well, that's going to be 90 proof in the Okay, US. nice. Okay. I like that. Cool. Yeah, I like the little bump. Yeah, bump um, hard. And then you know, I, I this is kind of an economic question, I guess. And I I don't mean this to be. I, some people might take this question the wrong way, so I'm not trying to mean it the wrong way. But you know, building a distillery from scratch, starting a rum brand, really really expensive. Now you said like it was well funded and everything. I think many companies would also release a sourced product in their early years as they scale up, so they can have something aged right away. Was that did that question ever come up for y'all how did you think about that and what made you ultimately decide not to go that way or at least to my knowledge you didn't go that way I, I could be wrong we didn't well if there was talk about that that was before i got on the scene because when i got on the scene they already put deposit down on equipment okay. right they were they were yeah, doing yeah, this yeah. in fact <laughs> i think the first vision was of an even larger distillery than we oh, have wow. now they were going to do something a little bit further north than we were Currently are one of the other fields that we're developing, and you know um, probably something that was uh, five or six times the throughput on the columns, and they decided, well, maybe that's a little bit too big to start out with. So it was always envisioned to be, you know, to be a producer right away, and not as far as a sourcing product. And I think that you know, to the idea that they want to do with, with cane juice or something that's you could produce there on the land, it's, it's difficult to source cane juice products, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't really for for us. It's as much about about place as about the product, right? You want to have a product that represents the, gives a sense of place of where that it's made. And if there's nothing wrong with sourcing it while you're trying to figure out what your story mm -hmm. is, but then you have to be able to kind of reasonably replicate that product. You know, when you do build it, right? Unless you so, just want to grow it as a completely separate brand, sort of. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So. There's no, there was nobody else. I guess if somebody else was making cane juice rum in Belize at the time, they might have kind of thought about mm -hmm. that. Since there wasn't, they figured the only way we're going to get this done the way we want to is build a distillery. Now, I'm more risk averse. I would have probably <laughs> built something smaller okay. first. <laughs> but that's just me, right? So talking a little bit about the aging program a little bit. So you mentioned already you have the white rum, which that one is rested for, I think it's six months in stainless steel. 
Yep. Right. So I, I wouldn't call that an unaged rum. I think Will and I were debating a little bit about that. Yeah, we, about, we've had, we've had conversations that. on, you know, because, you know, some companies release uh, a, a white rum they may call an unaged rum that's just pretty much off the still. Uh, and some people have, you know, a lengthy resting process, but it's not resting in barrels or wood. It's, it's resting in stainless steel. And so, yeah, right. John has always felt hesitant to call that unaged or I, I I don't know I call it unaged but I also get that it, it spent some time in a container of some sort but well yeah um, I, you know the, the, it's sitting in the considering a container allows you know the whatever kind of shock from distillation kind of things to calm down a mm-hmm. little bit and certainly spirit after even after a couple of months and when it first comes off the still but yeah it, it I think to call it give it I think unaged kind of represents really what it is. You know, people think of aged products as stuff that comes from barrels, and this certainly has not been a barrel. It's kind of been, right. you know. You couldn't put an age statement on it anyway, so. Yeah, right. Yeah. Clear, right, right, I get that. Okay, so then you have your your barrel-rested rum, right, which is rested in ex-bourbon barrels. I think I even saw, saw that you source only used Jack Daniels barrels because you like them better because of the filtration. Well, we started uh, out that way. And then we've kind of expanded our, our horizons, one, because Jack Daniels barrels became difficult to get. Okay. We found kind of a, an interesting thing. So, and then and now we're back to the, where we are this year that the, the things that we really, really liked are difficult to get. So we have to make concessions on what's, what's available and what we would think would be you know, interesting going forward. But that is, that's absolutely true. We started out with a, a mix of Jack Daniels and Jim Beam barrels. Mm-hmm. And we could get, you know, whatever we wanted. And we quickly gravitated to the, the Jack Daniels barrels because of uh, the way they filter their spirit bef- before it goes into the barrel. Right. It makes less grainy. So what's left behind is, I guess, less bourbony than like a Jack Daniels, than a, a Jim Beam barrel. Yeah. Nothing, wrong with, nothing wrong with bourbon, but cane spirits are gentle spirits. So, you, you know, it's mm. easy to overwhelm it. With particular barrel styles, y'all know you're gonna you're gonna get a phone call from someone up here in Lincoln County telling you those are not ex bourbon <laughs> barrels; they are ex Tennessee whiskey barrels. Tennessee whiskey because yeah. of that filtration <laughs> process, right? <laughs> Make that clear, right? The the second part of that question, I guess, as you kind of were alluding to, is looking at different things. And Will and I have talked a lot with recent distilleries that are using new oak barrels to age rum in, and, and also a lot of non-whiskey used barrels. Have you all been experimenting with either of those at this point? As a matter of fact, we have. Um, one, of the, one of the ideas we had when we started, because as you pointed out at the beginning, that there is a lengthy amount of time that we are not running the stills. And so one of the ideas was that, well, in the off season, in addition to you know the other things we might do, let's make some corn whiskey. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. So we did that for a couple of years. The only problem is that we insisted on growing the corn ourselves. And the there were two issues is that the the while the whiskey was delicious, the new make was delicious, the yields coming from the field were not that high. Mm. Apparently where our land was we weren't getting the you know, you weren't getting two hundred bushels an acre from us. And so the cost of putting whiskey in a barrel was extremely high. So we kind of silently stopped that, quickly stopped that project. But that left us with a number of um, new number four charred barrels. So I think it was last year we just said, hey, let's put some, uh, let's put some rum in those and we'll see how those turn. So we have a, we probably have about a couple of dozen of those sitting around waiting to see what they'll turn into. 
We've also done things with some different barrels. So we we've done some experiments with with cognac and port mm. barrels. Mm-hmm. Fact, we did a small release last year of a, a cognac barrel that we sold in California. Oh, so that okay. we thought that a really nice bar. Uh, so we continually do you know interesting things. We'll buy a few barrels or some wine barrels or something like that, and put some rum in it to see if, what kind of finishes we get and see if there's something we like. I don't see that to be kind of like a a huge program mm-hmm. for us, right? Right. But something that that do that's fun that we can offer to people that are really interested in the in the art and what we're yeah, doing. Yeah, for sure. You know, like us, so, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, what clients, certain clients like that kind of stuff, and we're willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have some we have some sauterne barrels that are coming. So Ooh, okay. excited about. I'm going to do two sets of experiments. We're going to finish in them, and then we're going to put some new make in that and see what happens. One thing I wanted to circle back to, um, you, you may have mentioned it earlier, but I, I, I can't remember. So we've established that the Kapali White, 75% column still, 25% pot. You have the single varietal bottling coming. It's going to be 100% pot. But everything that you're aging is all pot still, correct? Okay, so right. how did you arrive at, at that decision? I, I mean, we know that you're pot still number one fan, very pro pot still. But for, you know, from an, a cost perspective, I, I'm assuming the pot still rum, you know, is more difficult to make, smaller batches and everything, you know, than the rum has to age. So what kind of went into the decision to go, you know, for aging, we're going to go 100% pot still? Well, I, I think it was, <laughs> I don't know how much, much thought went into it. We basically, our columns are, have a tremendous amount of throughput mm-hmm. and our pot stills have much yeah. less. And so really every, as we've started, started up every year, we would be more focused on maximizing the pot still. And at some point, you know, we would put, we would fill tanks up and then, you know, maybe the sales forecast didn't work out or, you know, something like a pandemic happens and your sales forecast doesn't have that. And we have to, we want to, we want to harvest next year and we have stuff in the tanks. And so it goes into a barrel. So that becomes our unit of storage. So I think, you know, from my preference, that's kind of evolved mm-hmm. that way. I don't know if always do it that way. I think there's some thinking, you know, because there is an economic... Right. Um, Scalability you know, is difficult there. Putting, right. So, so you'll probably start seeing some blending going on in the future. But right now, everything that's in the we- aging warehouse is 100% possible. Okay. I have a, a good question here for you, but I've kind of got to <laughs> way to, way a to bit introduce it. And, <laughs> and wind my way in. We've seen a recent trend from Martinique Agricole rums and maybe some other rums out there also that are now producing an organic version of their product. And it's often like used as a headline on the bottle or written in very big font. And it's offered a lot of times at a much higher price point than their regular offering. So Kapali is and has always been an organic product. I know the word organic is on the label, but it isn't quite as pronounced or thrown out there. And your price point is far less than those options that I've seen out there that are are highly organic and, and touting that. So I, I guess I wanted to kind of ask where your thoughts were. And I don't know how much you know about those other rums that are that are doing that or if you've had experience with them. But what does organic rum mean to you and Kapali? And then maybe share a little bit of your thoughts on organic rums in the market as a whole. Well, I think, you know, I don't know if I, I have thoughts about organic rum in particular. I, you know, my, my thoughts about organic farming is that, you know, there's this preconceived notion that when you farm organic, the yields are much lower and it's much more expensive, you know, all the processes involved. And it's just much more, 
It's not an efficient way to grow. Makes sense. Food, mm-hmm. Right? And those those concepts are absolutely wrong. Mm. It it can be <laughs> just as cost effective to grow something organically, depending on depending on how you're doing it. If you if you're using a holistic method to grow, right? If all you're doing is you know throwing organic chicken manure on the on the fields, as your as your process, and you're calling that that's organic. Right. Well, yeah, then that's probably going to cost mm. more, right? But if you're looking at the entire vol- environment. Recognizing that you know the, the 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 bacteria in the organisms and the mycelium and all that stuff that grows in the ground and provides nutrients and transforms nutrients in the ground, the elements in the ground to provide food for the plants that are growing. That's all an integrated unit. You can do that at a much cheaper price, or at least at a cost-effective price, and your yields are better. Our, our yields per acre for our cane are typically. 30 to can go from 35 to 50 tons mm. an acre. In the fields up north where they grow commercially, they, they struggle to produce 25 tons wow. an acre. So that we got to be doing something right. And, you know, it, <laughs> are, are inputs more expensive? Sure, but we don't have to put quite as many of them on there. And we can produce rum at a, at a reasonable price. You know, is it, a, is it as cheap as, you know, if we made it from, you're making spirits from, Corn? No, it's mm. not, right? And it's more it's more than that. Or if we don't or certainly from molasses, right? It's more than making mm-hmm. molasses. But it is, you know, for the type of product we were making and the quality that we're producing, we can produce a, you know, a a reasonably priced product. So I if guys are, are charging that much more for it, maybe it's a organic premium that they think they can get in the marketplace. Maybe those farmers that are growing it are, you know, more expensive, but I don't think it has mm. to be. And I think we sh- we show that it doesn't have to be. Do you do you do any kind of the the organic certification processes or any anything like that for, for? Oh yeah, we get we have we we have we're organically certified. So every year we have we're inspected. Both the distillery is inspected and the farms inspected okay. to ensure that we're utilize our organic processing. And really, what it is, it's really a a huge paperwork tra- tracking mm-hmm. problem, right? So. Well, you have to track all the inputs that go into the field, mm-hmm. the, what gets transported to the distillery, all the processes in the distillery, and when the, when it goes back out. And also, you know, so if, and we do we do this drill every time. They'll pick a shipment from during the year, and they'll say, okay, shipment X, trace for me, do a traceability report from all the way back to the field. So they'll want to see those types of things. So that's all part of the process. I was going to say, I want to do that job. But then after you said that last part, I'm not sure I want <laughs> <The> paperwork. <laughs> One more thing I wanted to ask about, you know, the, the cane side of things. You know, we've, we've had a few different distilleries on the podcast that are growing sugar cane and are, you know, I think what people would describe as terroir driven rums. And I think there's... distilleries approach this from different angles some of them they really want to emphasize the difference that the cane varietal the the way cane varietal can impact differences in flavor other distilleries really want to showcase the way certain areas uh, different patches of land can inform flavor how how does kapali look at that and you know you, you spoke a little bit to the different cane varietals but do you also look at different uh, areas where you're growing cane and and do you notice differences that you get from cane juice that comes from one area versus another 
Yeah, I, I know what I know. Renegades done a bunch of work on yeah, that. Yeah, we had them on the show recently, so it's it's freshly yeah. in my mind. I mean, I know I'm sure they don't care what we do, but um, <laughs> you know, I look I look at guys like that as you know almost almost as my brothers, right? Or maybe my you know my second cousins because you know we're all kind right, of right, yeah. Develop the same type of product here in, or new market for the, this product, but so we haven't kind of done that. We focus more on the varietals. We do notice as it, as product comes through the distillery, the operators myself can tell where they've shift, shifted mm, fields mm-hmm. sometimes, that, that the rum will taste mm-hmm. different. The way the cane looks is different. The rum will taste different. We haven't kind of you know gone as far as to track those in individual nuances through the barrel. I think that for us, it's kind of like, maybe that's a second order effect that we're looking mm-hmm. for. Certainly mm-hmm. the varietal dominates more than the location. We probably have we probably could break it into about three locations down close to the distillery, and then there's another field about forty minutes away that probably oh, is wow. it's also different. Gotcha. So maybe that's something we start looking at in the future mm-hmm. after we've kind of had a you know a few consistent years of developing a product and be able to track how that goes on. But right now we're not we're not really looking at that or using that as a tool to to sure, talk about. Sure. Yeah, I like that you're looking at uh, other other entrants into the marketplace as kind of you know brothers or cousins. By the way, I like the I like the the, the friendly spirit there. Um, so I wanted to shift gears a little bit. I, I mentioned I had a glass of the Kapali White. I also have a glass of something I don't usually drink, which is a. I, it it almost actually. I, I feel wrong calling this a flavored rum because I think the connotation of a flavored rum is something that is less than forty percent, <laughs> less than forty percent yeah. flavored with stuff that isn't all that natural and then sweetened heavily. So this is and marketed heavily. And, yeah. Um, so <laughs> this is the cacao rum that Kapali has done, and I wanted to ask, you know, what was your first reaction when you were? Ta- or maybe it was your idea. I don't know. What did someone come to you and say, "Hey, Ed, we want you to make a chocolate rum." And like, how did you? How did that strike you at first? And then, how did you approach it? What was the creative process like? So, so here's the story on that one. This is another. This is a good story. So, um, early in the first couple of years after we started, marketing, our marketing team was bringing down groups. You know, we'll, we'll call them instanistas, right? Down to the distillery to kind of you know. Promote the distillery and take pictures of their beautiful. So these are like influencers, and, right? Okay. Influencers, and um, in those, in one, in some of those groups, they actually had people that knew stuff about the business. And one of them was a lady named Devin Tarby, and she is a partner at Death and Co. Oh, okay, okay. wow, yeah. So we become we've since become friends, but at the time, so. It was one of these evenings where everyone had a bunch to drink. And so she gets me on the <laughs> One of many evenings. She, she starts making you know, a, a few cocktails. And then she looks at me and she says, Ed, you should make a creme de cacao. And I said, Devin, I hate that shit. I, never- <laughs> <laughs> I was but, hoping this no, story really would be something think about like this. That. Because we, on, the, in the, on the forum, we also grow cacao for making chocolate. And there's mm-hmm. right. A little proprietary chocolate making operation. So I let that idea kind of, you know, drift around my head for, I would say, for about a year. And I don't know what made me decide to do it. It's like, you know, screw it, I'm gonna give it a try. So in my in my previous, in my own little distillery, I had gotten quite a bit of facility in making gins. We've made, you know, I made 
private gins. I'd make private gins for restaurants, for mm-hmm. Blue Hill Group. I would make their own seasonal gins. So I said, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it like I'm I'm gonna make it like I'm making gin. So I took a bunch of what I thought was the correct ratio of roasted cacao nibs, mm-hmm. put it in a container. I put column rum in it. I let it macerate for a few days. Mm-hmm. I stuck everything in my test still, and I started it up. And when the when the flow started coming out, I, I guess I don't know. If, I don't know if anybody heard me, but no one was there. But I started getting this maniacal laugh as soon as it came over the still because the whole room smelled like a dark chocolate bar as it was going. <laughs> and I said, this is, this is freaking amazing. Right? Yeah. So um, that's how that started, right? So it was a, an idea, you know, in a bar. It took me kind of a while to think, well, maybe there's something there. Or at least maybe I was bored and I'll say, I'll give this a shot. But that was the genesis of the product. So, yeah, it wasn't marketing and come up and say, you know, we need a chocolate rum. And I, had to, I had to convince people of that, too. It's, you know, do we really need this? You know, was it? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh-huh. from. Well, and like the when you were describing the, the scent there in the distillery, um, I'm sure what I have in the glass doesn't quite capture that moment that yeah. that conjured the maniacal laugh. But I mean, when you smell it, I mean, it smells like um you know, sticking your nose and like unwrapping a really high quality dark chocolate right, exactly. and, and sticking your nose in it. It's, it's pretty remarkable. And, and, you know, I think John and I are both people that approach chocolate rum with a little bit of skepticism and a little bit of like, I'm probably not going to be that into this. Oh, believe um, me, I get a lot of that when I offer people on tastings. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was one of them. Sure, you know, it's, I don't know. Okay. I'll give it a try. Yeah. <laughs> I, t- I think I told Will about that afterwards. I was like, I was one of them. And I was like, I don't know. That cacao rum, Will, is great. Uh, yeah, it's 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 really good. Um, I mean, normally we don't, you know, turn yeah. these interviews into praise sessions. But it's 40%. It's not sweetened. And it doesn't taste sweet. But at the right. same time, it's extremely approachable. I would imagine I could give this to, um, you know, my, my parents aren't people who really drink neat spirits. Uh, I'm a, I think I could give this to them and it, it would be acceptable to them. Yeah. So it's uh, and, and at the same time, I find it interesting as well. So yeah. it's it's really kind of threaded the needle. Wait, taking one step back, though, did the idea to distill it after you macerated it with the cocoa nibs come from the infused gin tradition, you were saying? Or oh, was absolutely. that just... Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, we stick to mostly rum here, so I don't know. I have a whole lot of gin knowledge. But <laughs> yeah, use it and redistill it. That was, that's the technique. That's Got my, it. And, that's and my go-to technique. Do you use the pot or the column still for that now? Uh, we use a column still. Okay. But still, once you redistill it, you kind of obliterate all the... Got it. Pot still, and you're for this. You really want the the botanical to come through and right. show it. Right, right, right. Yeah, there okay. might be a little bit of clashing between that that heavier pot still and the yeah, that the cacao. Sense. So you mentioned earlier there there wasn't anybody doing what you were doing in Belize with the cane juice rum, and I still don't think there is anybody doing what you're doing. I might, I don't think so. I think you're the only ones. But I know there is a Belizean rum out there that actually I think has been experiencing a bit of a resurgence, at least in the U.S. market, um, and at least I will say in the rum geek circles, right? There's been a lot of good Belize releases from Travelers and some other distilleries in, in Belize, and then, of course, what you're doing at Kapali. So I, I just was curious to know how often, if at all, do you talk to other producers there? Is there ever any discussion about a national category? Because I think already you're at a tough place with the cane juice versus the molasses. So, um, yeah, just looking for your thoughts on that. No, we don't really chat that often. 
those guys came down to visit when we first kind of came up. So a lot of oohing and on at the new equipment <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but we don't really, we don't really, our, our, the way we do things are just so different. Mm. We're, we're both kind of members of the, the, the Caribbean Rum Association. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of like, you know, where our relationship kind of begins and ends. You know, we're, we're not, they produce a different product than we, than we do in different methods. And so there's mm-hmm. just a lot of yeah. cross up there. Tip the hat no. as you walk by and that's about yeah, it. That's <laughs> Has has anything come of being a Worspa member? I mean, I, I know um, not every new distillery becomes a Worspa member. Uh, a lot of them are distillery rum distilleries that have been around for a long, long time. Have you you know benefited from that in terms of sharing of knowledge or, or you know getting to know, see what other producers are doing or anything like? Uh, I think like it's, that you know, it's I think it's a benefit for to, to see what other people are doing and how uh-huh. they're approaching the business and how the how the interest or how the market is impacting them. You know, every once in a while, there's there's a technical presentation that's interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it has its app, app, it applies to what we're doing. Sometimes it doesn't, right? But that doesn't mean it isn't interesting. So, on whole, it's you know, it's it's not a tremendous commitment in time and resources. Sure. To that, so it's 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 worth, absolutely worth doing. You know, speaking of kind of the broader landscape of, of rum we we are we've we've mentioned some of the other distilleries out there you know we're seeing more and more new distilleries every year making cane juice rum um you know in the caribbean even in the the u.s as well often you know places that don't have as much of a tradition doing it as the french islands you know we, we mentioned grenada earlier as another mm-hmm. one um where, where do you kind of see the category going in the next decade or so and, and does it excite you to see others jumping into it well, I think other the, I think this is a situation where, for the, for us to be successful as, an individual rum maker and as a brand, mm. it has to be more prevalent, right? If we're the only ones out in the wilderness, saying, "Hey, we got rum, you know, cane juice rum here," no one will ultimately care. It's got to mm-hmm. be kind of broad based, right? I think there'll be more and more of it because, the ability for people to source quality molasses for all the molasses producers is clearly getting more and more difficult. Yep. Sugar mills just get more and more efficient. Yep. The mm-hmm. quality of molasses keeps going down and you know it's more and more difficult to make rum from that. So guys are, are looking to control their source right. of input to the product, right? And you know, nobody wants to build a sugar mill, right? So to make their Set own Right, yeah, <laughs> and so it's you know you get you get drawn into making sugarcane juice rums, which I think has more nuance to it. Yeah, anyway, well, let's. I'm not going to degrade anybody else. <laughs> um, you don't want to jump down, think, jump down think, that rabbit hole. I think it offers something new in the marketplace, right? Yeah, it's, absolutely. 20, twenty years ago, nobody thought tequila was a. Maybe it was twenty five years ago. I'm an old guy, but <laughs> twenty tw- a couple of decades ago, nobody thought tequila was. A, you know, as a quality product, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now it's like no one thinks twice about spending $50, $60 for a yeah, bottle. Yeah, true. I think, you know, cane, well-made cane juice rums can can follow that same evolution, right, for guys that do it right. And it's, once people kind of get used to the nuance and the dissidence in that you're, you, you get in those flavors, right? I think people are more and more Society is willing to accept more and more dissidents in their foods and that what they drink and their music as time goes on. And I think this is just going to evolve. Ultimately, 
hopefully while I'm still making it, becomes <laughs> accepted in the marketplace. Yeah, I know John and I are, are rooting for it as well. Oh, yeah. And and really, you know, that what what you spoke to with the difficulties with molasses and more molasses producers trying to get control of their sugarcane source. I think it's gonna it's on one hand it's it's scary to me because I do I, I love cane juice rums, but I, I I love molasses rums too. Um, and you know, sometimes I hear about the molasses supply and I get a little worried about what the future looks like. But at the same time, I think a lot of these producers are making investments in new and different things and, you know, maybe combining the sources that they're using. I think it's going right. to lead to a lot of really interesting. Yeah. Well, that's new, what I mean, Richard Steele doing that in Foursquare, right? He's, exactly. He's, mm -hmm. he's adding cane juice to some of his molasses batches and, mm -hmm. you know, playing games like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned we've, we've covered the, the black cane that is is coming uh hopefully at some point this year you mentioned there's a five-year rum on the horizon yep. that that will be your first age statement release Absolutely. correct yep. so i'm imagining you as a distiller you, you've been there what for seven eight years this is the, i'm finished up my eighth year and okay. actually technically it's not because the 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 cognac release was actually a four-year release. So okay, we, so you did. So this would be the first mass market, right? This would be the first kind of you know larger, more than fifty cases. Uh huh. So how does it feel after you know putting in the seven eight years of work to now be at the point where you will have a bottle you can point to that you know has an age statement on it and it is something that lots of people can enjoy instead of you know just the little kind of micro releases right. well i think for me personally it's you know incredibly gratifying right and rewarding that you're finally able to you know because that's that's part of being a, a distiller or a rum maker is having an aged product on the marketplace right mm -hmm. certainly you know, certainly the white products or the unaged products they mm -hmm. they pay the bills but i think as far as you the know chocolate products the chocolate <laughs> products but as far as you know having that little extra credibility and something to show off in the marketplace it's important and it's and it's important for me you know the pride that i have and the people that who make it with me have in the product to be able to do that and present that to uh, the public is very important is is that going to be ninety proof as well, or a little lower? No, that one we're going to keep at eighty eight to match rested rum, so you could see how those things kind of mm -hmm. transition over time. Okay, well, even the think, extra... and ultimately, we'll probably the next we'll probably stay at five years, and at some point, when if we have any left over, we might have a ten year at some point. So that's okay. kind of like the next view. Yeah, well, we we appreciate the the extra two percent just as we appreciate it in the in the <laughs> we white. Do. Uh, no, I mean, uh, honestly, like, I, I think that goes just just that little bit goes a long way over, you know, going past yeah. 80. I wish more producers would do that as well. So, um, well, and I think we've covered just about everything we wanted to get to. Um, we do have we have a final special segment of the show called the Rapid Fire Round. My co-host, John Gullah, prepares a series of questions, uh, both straightforward and fun off the wall prompts. And we put a very generous 60 seconds on the clock and see how many our guests can get through. So okay. are you, are you up for this? Uh, the challenge? No, why we, not? There we, might yeah, be some we, long pauses in there. For the, in the, <laughs> we edit be, those out. I, Don't worry about it. Ed. It might not be quite as rapid as you think, but I'm willing to do it. <laughs> okay. Um, I had to bend down and get my phone, but I, I, I'm the, I'm the timekeeper in this. Yes. Um, John leads the way. I just watch the clock and occasionally chime in, but I, um, I can't imagine. Well, I can't remember any other rapid fire segment. I've been this scared to death 
because Ed is such a good, serious man and <laughs> a, a, a Marine officer background. And I feel like I'm going to bring stuff and he's going to look at me funny and that's going to be the end of it. And he'll just he'll just leave the Zoom session. It'll be over. <laughs> Well, you know, hopefully my, we don't get there. My my dad was an army officer, and so you know, military men do have a sense of humor. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't take myself too. I, you know, I I want to be taken seriously, but I don't take myself too. Seriously. <laughs> good. Okay. We it's need a good that. Place to be we got. Yeah. yeah. This is that's where we want to go with this. <laughs> All right, John. Are you uh, are you ready to go over there? We are totally ready. All right. I've got sixty seconds and go. All right. Neat or on the rocks, Ed. Oh, uh, neat. Column, pot, or blend? Pot. Right. Okay, we know that one. Yeah. <laughs> aged or unaged? Unaged pot. Oh. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. We know the answer to this one: molasses or cane juice. Cane juice. Yep. Your favorite rainforest animal? <laughs> jaguar. I was going to say jaguar as well. Solid. I've been Very to a fierce. rainforest once in Costa Rica, and there was a spider there that was as big as my hand. It scared the <laughs> crap out of me. What animal scares you the most there? <laughs> um. Maybe an alligator. Okay. Oh, right. I didn't well, know there were alligators yeah, there. Wow. I mean, okay. We've got those John's every 20 that. feet yeah. in Florida. So, <laughs> <laughs> In your opinion, the best rum mixed drink or cocktail? Daiquiri. Makes sense. Okay. Kapali's rums are barrel rested. Well, you have the barrel rested, which sort of implies it had the right amount of time to wake up feeling its best. Does that mean we should also call a longer aged Kapali rum barrel groggy or maybe barrel <laughs> overslept? Hibernated? Oh, no. <laughs> we'll just go with the the five years yeah <laughs> okay five year makes sense uh your favorite person to share a great bottle of rum with the mother of my children good answer she, good answer. she will appreciate that um the best country or distillery making rum right now not located in belize that is more difficult um i love the stuff that some of the hawaiian guys are doing mm-hmm. oh, okay nice yeah I wish I had the opportunity to taste more of what um, all the Renegade guys are doing. But my personal, if I if I was looking on the shelf to buy something, I would probably buy something from Foursquare. So kind of a circle then. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we're gonna try something here. This is uh, this is gonna be interesting. But I have to say, I really enjoy the marketing and the look the brand Kapali brings. Uh, everything is really well put together. I know I've remarked on that on the show before with Will. Um, but you don't have a jingle. So I figured, you know, maybe I could find a jingle out there for you guys. And, I, you know, I oh, wanted man. to start from a place that made sense with some maybe popular ones and see if we can land on something. So I'm going to give you a couple jingles and you tell me one to ten, ten being the best, what you think of them. All, All right. right. All right. Here we go. Here's the first one. It goes like this. Give me a deck. Give me a deck. I want another daiquiri with Copali rum. That's a two. Oh, <laughs> we don't like that one. All right. Well, they don't get any much better here. Ed, so <laughs> let's go with um, uh, Co, 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 Copali Rainforest Rum. <laughs> That's still another two. Yeah. Oh, I thought maybe you liked that one a little yeah, bit. I thought it was going to at least get to a three. Yeah. There. Yeah. All right. I'm going to need Will's help for this last one. Will, um, you need to Oh, my God. You're going to pull me into this? Yes. You're you going to join me. Will, you're going to do the Chili's baseline here, but instead of Chili's, you're going to say Copali. <laughs> okay? So if you can give me that, we're going to go for song? it. Chili's song? Yes. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, you can do it. So, so like, I want my Copali then? Exactly. Okay. Yes. I want my Copali, 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 Copali. There we go. Keep Copali, it going. Keep Copali, it going. Copali, Copali, organic rum. I fell apart. I couldn't keep it going. You guys go seven. Oh, we got the seven. rum, single estate. There we go. All right. We're going to land on that one then. 
Awesome. Right. Um, maybe maybe a record for the longest. We had to get all those jingles in there. As I said, it's a very generous 60 seconds. Um, but thank you for, for being a good sport, Ed. Before we wrap everything up, I know we covered a lot of ground. Was there anything we didn't get to? Anything else uh, people should keep their eye out coming from the distillery anytime soon? No, I think we talked about the two new products. And there might be a you know an occasional new flavor in the same spirit that we've done, like a cow run. So... Uh, Hmm. We'll see what happens with that. Sweet. I'm imagining another locally sourced ingredient, probably. Yeah, absolutely. Something we grow ourselves. Yep. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I'll, I'll honestly, I can say that maybe one of the first flavored uh, rum products I might look forward to <laughs> based on yeah. this one. So, yeah. Um, well, well, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah. Uh, thank you. As we said, we know it's a uh, middle of the harvest season. You're very busy. So, appreciate you taking some time out of the day. Um, Thanks for joining us. Great talking to you guys. A lot of fun. Thank you very much. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Rumcast. If you want to learn more about Kapali, we'll put some links up in the show notes to their website and maybe a couple of, there's some other good interviews, articles out there we'll, we'll link to in the show notes as well if you want to learn more. And hey, if you want to get more Rumcast content, you can join us on Patreon, dot uh, com slash the Rumcast. That is where we are doing bonus episodes. We're doing happy hours, early access to episodes ad free episodes so it's a great place to go and yeah join the community almost 100 strong at this point growing all the time so it's fun stuff but john in the meantime if they want to get in touch with us if you have questions about the episode about the show suggestions if you want to make fun of my uh demerara rum bracket from the previous episode a little bit more how can they get in touch with us john We've peppered the internet at this point with our influence everywhere. You just look, you can't throw a, a digital rock and not hit us on the internet now, Will. We're, we're at uh, specifically Facebook. We have a Facebook page there at the Rumcast. Uh, you can find us on Instagram where we're going to post there. And I think we're, we're starting to try to post a little bit more other varied content there as well uh, between episodes to, to help sustain between those long two weeks, our That's usual right. releases. Mm-hmm. Uh, so more stuff through Instagram and Facebook. We've, we've all been a abandoned Twitter at this point, Will. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to keep posting at least the links that for the new episodes that come out. The links uh, will the links will flow. They'll be there. You'll see them. And then you, they'll lead you to other places where we, we're at. And of course, we're online ourselves at therumcast.com. So you can always go there. Or you can e- send us an email if you want to talk. Host at rumcast.com and send us uh, an email and talk about what you want to talk about. Tell Will why he's wrong about everything. It's not Please. just a guy on a thing. Let's all be honest. It's, you know, it's a, a bunch <laughs> of different things. Don't limit it to that. Yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of things. So I'm, I'm wrong about all the time. So please and point And occasionally them out. I'm wrong as well, Will, occasionally. <laughs> every now and then. Every yeah. now and then. So yeah, um, please, please send us your emails there. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to reading those. But until next time, John, I'll see you then. Bye.